Welcome to you from wherever it is that you're watching today. My name's Travis, and it is so good to have you with us today. I've got to start, of course, by wishing all my fellow dads out there a very happy Father's Day. That's a pretty exciting weekend for the Ryan household, as our bub number two is due any day now. So、uh, unusually, I've actually got my phone left on for this because、uh, that is a phone call I do not want to miss.、Uh, but look, I hope you've had a fantastic day and are being spoiled and feel very loved by your family. But so much more than that, I pray you feel really valued and affirmed in the role you play as a dad in the life of your kids. And on behalf of our church family, we just want to say thank you for loving and leading our young people so well. Well, today we're going to jump into a new series. Really excited about it. We're going to look at the New Testament letter of One Thessalonians together.、Uh, and as always,、uh, we encourage you to get the most out of this series by engaging with the Word for yourselves. So when you're watching church online, make sure you bring your Bibles, you have them open,、uh, and are tracking through the passage with us.、Uh, but then during the week, really want you to go and spend time in One Thessalonians in your own personal devotional life.、Uh, read through it repeatedly, often meditate, journal, pray, reflect on different verses. Uh, to help facilitate that, we've created a devotional guide as well, which you can download through the links that are below this video, which will actually just run you through the book over the next six weeks,、uh, every day, just focusing in on a key verse as well. But look, when it comes to scripture,、uh, we know that interpreting it, it always means that context is key. Uh, so to give a bit of an overview of the letter as a whole, we've invited, well, sort of invited, the Bible Project guys just to give us an introduction to the letter.、Uh, so make sure you grab a, a notebook and a pen、uh, and get ready as the Bible Project guys introduce us to the letter of One Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul, and the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his coworker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica, and after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city, and this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay; they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. 
So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews, and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. 
So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. First Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what First Thessalonians is all about. The Bible reading today comes from 1 Thessalonians 1, 1-10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how he lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us with the coming wrath. You know, it fills my heart so full of joy to think back on the people who I've been involved in passing my faith onto over the years, whether that was in big ways or small ways, part of their faith formation or even their coming to faith. Uh, It's a collection of some of my most precious and meaningful memories and interactions. You know, people I've opened the word with and had the chance to pray with and for, people I've actually opened up my life and my faith to, that they may learn from my experience of what it means to follow Jesus. And over the years, as naturally happens, uh, a lot of those people have gone in different directions to me. And I I do wonder sometimes what they're doing and where they're up to in life and um, who they're doing it with. But there's one question above all that I'm really invested in knowing the answer to. And it's how is their faith going today? Did they continue to follow Jesus and to live for him? Have they become, you know, a link in the chain, so to speak, someone who now passes that on to others wherever they go? 
You know, I imagine for Paul that he intensely wants to know the answer to that very question when it comes to the Thessalonian believers. You know, we read from the book of Acts in chapter 17 that Paul, Silas and Timothy, when they're in the city, um, bring people to faith and a church is born. Uh, But all too soon, they're driven out of the city by opponents of them and their message. And those opponents are so hostile, they actually follow them to the next town they minister in and drive them out of there as well. And in an age before email and mobile phones or the ability to stalk people on Facebook, I mean, how would Paul have known how they and their faith continued after he left? So imagine his absolute joy to start hearing reports of the vibrancy and the contagiousness of their faith. Uh, We read this uh, already in the back half of our passage today. Uh, So we read in verse 7 that actually the believers in Thessalonica had become a model to other believers of what it means to follow Jesus. That the Lord's message, the gospel message, the good news message about Jesus rang out from them, not just actually in their uh, surrounding region, but actually their faith in God has become known everywhere. So understandably, Paul opens his letter to them by just saying, thank you, Lord. You know, we always thank God for all of you, verse 2, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work, your labor, and your endurance. You know, I just have this lovely sense that Paul gets it, really gets it, and he's such a good model for us in this as well. He gets how joyful and how meaningful, how significant it is to be able to pass on our faith to another, to be used by God to see another lost son or daughter of his welcomed home and brought back into the family of faith by trusting Jesus. I mean, think of yourself for a moment as well. Where would you be? Where would your faith be were it not for individuals? Everyday believers who had a passion to share the gospel with you, who were courageous enough and led by the Spirit enough just to know when was the right moment to invite you to respond to the person of Jesus as well. In fact, I'd love you to reflect on that, maybe even discuss it with others. Think back to the beginning of your faith journey. Was there one or maybe a few key people that were instrumental in passing on the faith to you? And I want you to reflect on what it means to you that they did. And the second thing I'd love you to reflect and and discuss is, well, how much do you want to be that for others? And please don't hear any judgment behind that question. This is just an encouragement and invitation to be self-aware uh, and to be open with the people that you're watching with today. So you'll notice that Paul prays or remembers before God three things in particular about the life and the faith of the Thessalonian believers. He remembers their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope. You know, these are so much more than Christian sentiments or vague concepts or emotions that we experience. 
As a believer, these are powerful catalysts for the way that we live and we act and we witness today. You know, faith looks back to what and when we believed, who Jesus is, what he has done for us, why we put our faith and trust in him in the first place, and what it means for us that we did. Love captures some of our present-day experience of the love of God. You know, John 3.1, you know, the Father has lavished his love upon us in calling us his children. And so we get to live in and experience every day both the love and the presence of our loving Heavenly Father. And we, in return, respond by loving him with our whole heart, soul and mind. Uh, Then hope is that sort of future orientation and expectation where we look forward to and anticipate the return of Jesus, the final fulfillment of all salvation history, where we get to experience life eternally with him, unmarred by anything that is not of his kingdom. How we live as followers of Jesus is shaped by these three things. You know, our faith produces or catalyzes or overflows into present day action and activity in the way that we live. Our experience of God's love prompts or catalyzes or overflows into present day action and activity as we love others well. And our future hope, it inspires or catalyzes or overflows into how we live focused lives with the right eternal priorities today. You know, so comprehensive are these three influences in our lives that Calvin called them a brief definition of true Christianity. I think it's important to recognize that this is our heart for those that we pass the gospel onto. Not only that they would welcome the message and sort of intellectually agree to it, but they would actually start to live a life shaped by faith, love and hope. And of course, you know what this means, don't you? It means that if we want to be passing on this kind of faith, then we need to be living this way ourselves as well. You know, Paul observed in verse 6 that the Thessalonians became imitators of those who passed the faith onto them. And so I want to ask us this morning, are faith, love and hope the primary influences in our life, in our decision making and in our relationships? You can pause to discuss and reflect if you'd like, otherwise we'll keep going. I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But there was only a church to write to in the first place because, in verse 5, the gospel came to them. Well, we know the gospel didn't mysteriously appear out of thin air one day, nor did it waft in on the evening breeze. The gospel came to them because Paul and his companions did. And so maybe you don't feel like a particularly gifted evangelist. And that's okay, neither do I. But we do need to recognize and remember that when it comes to passing on our faith, all of us are those who carry the good news of Jesus with us wherever we go. And when it comes to passing on that which we carry, I want to draw your attention to the pattern of faithful and effective gospel sharing that's recorded for us here in verse 5. That the gospel comes with words, with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The gospel comes with and through words. Look, I get how pithy the saying is that we should preach the gospel everywhere and use words if necessary. 
But I want to remind you that words are, in fact, necessary and important. And Paul, he writes to the Romans in chapter 12, and he says, How can someone believe in Jesus if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Friends, we need to open our mouths to declare the goodness of Jesus to others. And I encourage you to find your own language, your own words, your own ways of describing who Jesus is to you and the difference he has made in your life. And then be prepared, be ready and be quick to share that with others as opportunities arise. But of course, it's not just about our words alone, is it? Uh, We need to demonstrate through our lives that the kingdom of God is truly here. If words are an explanation, then the gospel coming with power is about demonstration. Now, I think we bring the gospel with power every time we demonstrate the way that the power of the gospel has changed us and transformed us. I think we bring the gospel with power every time that we can love with a counter-cultural, Christ-like, sacrificial love and compassion for people. Every time the world can see the church being the organization, the family of faith that stands up for the voiceless and those who are on the receiving end of injustice, I think it speaks powerfully of the nature of the kingdom of God. Every time that we show that God speaks today, that he is present with us, and pass on prophetic words or are involved in praying for supernatural healing in people's life. It testifies to the power and the king of the kingdom, Jesus. I think the reality is for all of us is that Jesus has powerfully changed our lives. And so we believe and we know that all those who would encounter him can also be powerfully changed. So we need to both share that and show that in our lives. Uh, Thankfully, of course, it's not just on us. Um, The gospel comes with the Holy Spirit. You know, we can't argue someone into the kingdom. Hands up if you've ever tried that strategy, right? (laughs) We can't impress someone into believing. And we can't educate someone into faith. It's the Holy Spirit's role to convict the world of their need for Jesus. And so our role in passing on our faith is to then rely on him, to listen to his leadings and his promptings, and then ultimately to trust his work in the life of another. We want to be praying that God would soften by the power of his Holy Spirit the hearts of those that we're trying to share Jesus with, and that Jesus would, uh, that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to the beauty and the person and the work of Jesus. We want to pray for ourselves as well that the Holy Spirit would give us courage and the right words to use at the right time. The gospel comes with words, power, Holy Spirit, and really importantly, with deep conviction, deep personal conviction as well. You know, Paul and the others, they believed this, like really believed this, prepared to die for it, believed it, prepared to live for it, believed it. Faithful and effective gospel sharing comes with words, power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And I hope these aren't just four dot points on your notes today. And so I want to give you another chance to reflect and discuss. What is the interplay between these four in the way that you seek to pass on the gospel in your own life at the moment? And what might God be saying to you today about that?
All right, let's recap. All of us, you, me, all of us, we are those who carry the good news of Jesus wherever we go. And we long to pass on our faith to others by bringing the gospel with words, power, the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And our heart in all of this is that those that we pass our faith on to would welcome the gospel message just like the Thessalonian believers did. And that they would actually be brought into a relationship with the living God and start to live a life shaped by faith, love and hope. And to end, I just want to circle back to verse 3. Produced by faith, prompted by love, inspired by hope. What does it mean to have these as the greatest influence in our relationships with those who are yet to believe? You know, I never want to be emotionally manipulative in my preaching. And if you experience this next bit like that, you have my full permission to disregard it and move on. But I think the text confronts us with it. That if we have genuine faith in Jesus if we have genuine love for God and others, if we have genuine hope in Jesus' return, then we know that some of the people we care deeply about are currently eternally separated from the living God. And I think it's entirely appropriate to ask ourselves the hypothetical question, what if, what if Jesus returned tonight while we're all tucked up in our beds? Who would we be deeply regretful over for not taking the initiative to share our faith with? I'll leave you with that question today. But Parramatta Baptist Church, on behalf of the pastoral team, we always thank God for all of you and constantly remember you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by the hope that we share in the Lord Jesus and his coming again. So continue living this out, being salt and light among the people and communities that God has placed you in. Bless you heaps.